Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest for today is the owner of SAB Design and Drafting. She works with real estate investors in the residential space. She will walk us through what design and drafting are specifically the step-by-step process to get a job done, and what mistakes you should avoid as a real estate investor. So let's welcome Sasha Beckwith. All right. Today we have Sasha Beckwith with us. She is owner of SAB Design and Drafting and performs a residential drafting and design. Sasha, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe how you got started in this uh, business? Sure. So kind of got started a little weirdly at First, I did go to college for interior design and housing studies and just kind of always liked the remodeling business. So I worked with a remodeler for a while. And then when I had at one time where my hours went from 40 hours a week to four hours a week, needed to kind of readjust some stuff and went and did kind of a small business assistant job for multiple clients. And after that, I kind of had the idea of, well, I worked for design and drafting, like a design build company. There must be some companies that just need the drafting part, which I can provide. So I talked with people for that and they're like, yes, and we can use you. And then I just kept building my business since then on mostly from referral basis. Sasha, do you want to just give us a brief description of what you know, design and drafting actually is and how that kind of fits into the residential real estate world? Sure. So there's a lot of different aspects of design and drafting. Like a lot of people either will think of like interior decorators or finishes and stuff like that, which are all good parts of it. I don't tend to do those parts. The parts I do is I will draw up the plans. I will help guide with the structural aspects of things because I know like what things are going to cost more, what things are going to cost less, if it's going to be harder or easier and uh, what kind of hoops we're going to be dealing with as well as kind of space planning the areas to make them flow far more easily and kind of get to whatever my client's end goal is keeping that in mind. And with a lot of investors, such as even if a flip, if they're doing a basement, I try to keep in mind, can this easily be converted down the road to something else for the new homeowner type deal? So like often like an ADU or a suite in that sense, I kind of keep that in mind for ease of use. So that's kind of what I do. I deal a lot with the permit at permits and the construction aspect. So nice. mainly you're drafting up like a site plan and a floor plan and elevations. Yep, full um, permit ready documents. And so like, yeah. what's the difference between like a designer and then an architect or something like that? 
So for my purposes in the residential realm, there really isn't a very big difference on that because like you can have somebody like me who, yeah, I'm not licensed. I've been working about in this for about seven years now, but there really isn't any difference between our knowledge bases. Like we're still, both of us would still need an engineer when we need engineers where the difference between myself and an architect comes into play is often with commercial properties because they get far pickier with commercial properties than they do with residential properties. So anything that's three or more units or commercial structure, unless you're doing something like small, that's not really structural, they would probably want an architect to get involved in it. For most of the residential stuff, duplexes, ADUs, any of that type of stuff, I can do pretty much the same thing. Nice. And you've worked a lot with investors. So you're really like savvy on like, you know, the, the cost benefit type design is, is what you're saying, right? Oh yeah. Like sometimes I'll have a couple investors where I'm like, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Just because I know how much it's going to take to do that. Yeah. And I'm like, if you're sure, because I don't know your numbers, but this is going to be costly. Right. But yeah, I kind of try to guide them what towards something that's more bang for the buck. Like I yeah. can understand doing something to get with a, a better product, but is that like yourself understand the investment? Is that going to be worth it in the end? So when you're looking at like an investment home, what are some of the things that you think like get the biggest bang for the buck? For the biggest bang for the buck, I often will look for sight lines. So sometimes I can't open everything up easily as some people want, but I still try to see if I if there's a way to get those sight lines from large areas, either if it's diagonally or straight shot type feel. So you're that- you're talking about blowing out walls and trying trying to create an open floor plan, and when that's not cost effective you're talking about creating sight lines. Yeah. And like that's sometimes some of the compromises that I would go through is those those sight lines. The normal stuff is pretty simple, like opening up walls. Right now I've had a lot of, um, because I have my retail clients and those kind of also kind of inform me, like what am I doing on this side to help this other side? probably like a lot of people know a lot of offices are in place and having a lot of additions. Like right now, a lot of people are, I feel they don't want to move. So they're kind of trying to adapt what they need from their space right now. And often what I'm doing in those realms is expanding, expanding bedrooms or adding on master suites, what I've done quite a bit recently. So I'd say normal rule of thumb, but one of the things, yeah, I'd try to do is like those sight lines of, and being cognizant of what is that view rate from the start. Like so when, it, so when it sounds like you're doing bedrooms and, and that sort of stuff, it seems like uh, are the investors that you're typically working with, like doing more flips and they're looking for like retail sale or are you working with more investors that are like buying to rent? I've got a mix of them. I would say probably right now 
it's a bit of half. Sometimes I'm more on the flip side than on the rental side. Sometimes I honestly don't know because they're just saying we want to do this. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe like so, a little bit newer investor too. Some of them. Yeah. But sometimes I don't really know as if they're new to me or if they're like, they might be new to me, but they might be very experienced. Uh, so no, Sasha, but, what, what are some of the things, I guess, looking at the opposite Mr. of the, the low hanging fruit, what are some of the things that you try and steer people away from in terms of additions or remodels? Ceilings. Say that vaulting ceilings. Vaulting ceilings. Lots of people want to vault the ceilings and it can be done, but if you're not overhauling the roof anyway, I don't recommend it. Like I understand the desire to have a nice ceiling, but I've had a few investors where they're wanting to vault the ceiling and I'm like, um, that's a lot of work. And so also sometimes tapering back how much opening they want is what I kind of have to do. Like they'll want to open up like a 25 foot space of wall. And if I have trusses above, I'm like, I can do that. That's going to be a huge beam and it's going to be in the middle of your house. Can I put some posts around the kitchen? So what we'll often do is like, because it's often around the kitchen area, what I'll often do is put posts right next to the island so that that beam can be a little, not as thick. So sometimes they get a little happy with opening up so much space that it becomes sometimes a tricky balance game with what I structurally had to put in. Also them opening a lot of the exterior walls. Contrary to popular belief, you do need some of your exterior wall, even if you're doing an addition. Yeah. One of the reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the show is because I recently bought a house that I want to do an addition on. And I know I've chatted with you a little bit about it, but it's a 1500 square foot house and it's kind of set up as a ranch. And I want to add on, I guess, a wing on one side of the house. And so I'd be interested to kind of hear, you know, this is a pretty popular type of remodel to add a, you know, a wing, or I guess when I say a wing, but like take, you know, a straight ranch style house and kind of like turn it into an L. Yeah, and, I'm making at least two or three of them right now. Yeah. And so including yours. when uh, somebody wants to do one of these projects, what do you suggest or like what, what are the best practices to get ready for it? And what are the, you know, how would someone get started with, I guess, adding on to a ranch? So first place I start, which again, I don't typically say I'm the typical person, but where I would start is knowing what your zoning is and knowing your setbacks. Cause that like, I've got one where we're expanding for the master suite, but we had to get a variance because the house was an older house and it was actually the, something I think had happened with the lot line and it had come towards the house. And so instead of your setback of five feet, the house is literally three feet away. 
So we had to get a variance for that. But knowing your setbacks, because sometimes they can sneak up on you. Like a lot of people, most of the time, the side setbacks, anywhere from five to 10 feet is usually fairly typical for sides. It's the rear ones that can, I've had additions get bitten in the butt from rear setbacks, especially in like places like Lake Oswego and West Lynn. They can have fairly significant rear setbacks. Like some places in Lake Oswego, it can be 30 feet. Wow. Yeah. And considering that usually the front is like 10 to 20 feet, you're like, you're limited on where you are, depending on where your site is. So that's usually the first step I go to is what are my setbacks? Can my addition fit within those setbacks? And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. And so just for our listeners, setbacks are the, you can build up to a certain amount of space to your property line. So it's like if your setback's five feet, then that means that the building can go up to five feet close to the property line. Is that right, Sasha? Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. That means a five foot setback just means that you have to be five feet setback or five feet away from your property line on the side, like the sides in that case are the front and the rear. And typically Um, like there's a a front, a rear and side setback, right? So then that covers all four sides of the lot. Yes. There's a front, a rear, and sides there's also what's called a street side which comes into place when you're on a corner and some jurisdictions will have that slightly different from your regular side street i mean side setback okay and so you plan out you know the based on the zoning which is a a very important place to start so like let's say that you've got you know a 10 foot setback on the front and the rear, and then a five foot setback on the sides. And so now you know that, and you're putting together your, do you move on to putting together kind of as built site and floor plans? Yeah, typically how I work is I like to come out and I measure out everything. Um, I'll take a peek of what kind of construction is going on up in the attic and what kind of construction is down in the crawl space. I'm not really going in there and measuring much in those places. I'm just making sure like, is the ceiling trust or rafter trust system is like your engineered trusses. You'll see like metal on them most of the time where versus your rafter system, which usually is just kind of a triangle possibly with some vertical members in it. And then what kind of crawl space you have, because that kind of helps me decide what kind of crawl space the addition is going to have. Because sometimes like different houses, they can be three feet off the ground or they can be six inches off the ground. And so that will, the crawl space often dictates kind of how much digging there is. And I don't want to daylight your existing foundation, which daylighting your existing foundation basically means that it's not as supported as it should be. (laughs) 
Okay. So the crawl space, I guess, subject that you brought up is pretty interesting to me. So what, what goes into, I guess, evaluating a crawl space and what type of information can you get from, you know, inspecting and then how, how does that help you decide which, like what type of construction to choose for an addition? So the information I usually glean from the crawl space is one part is the sheathing, which is for listeners, it's what goes above the joist, what you stand on, what your flooring is attached to is it's called floor sheathing. And that is one major thing as well as then kind of what the floor joists themselves are doing. Often it depends on what's also down there. Cause I've had crawl space accesses where it's like, Oh, this is an access. There is a duct work right next to me and I can see absolutely nothing. And I'm not sure how I get in here as well. So you have that. You also want to see how, like how deep it is. I've seen crawl spaces that you wouldn't be able to get under if you tried. And I've seen crawl spaces that are like 20 feet. Still not sure how those are crawl spaces, but they are. So it just depends on that. And why that information is good to know is because your for your addition, sometimes you have to tie into the, the existing walls, sometimes with your framing. So I want to know how thick your existing framing is so I can kind of match that as much as possible. Also, if you have, like I said, if you're pretty low to the ground, I don't want to be specifying you having joists that are going to put you underneath your dirt. Okay. Because framing just does not like to be on dirt. (laughs) Yeah. Unless it's pressure treated, right? (laughs) Even then I try to try to get it avoid at all costs. Okay. So uh, you've gone to the property and you have all of your measurements for your as builds. And did we miss any steps between like doing all your research on the computer, figuring out the zoning and jurisdictions, and then getting to the property and doing, getting measurements for as builds? Measurements. There's a few other zoning items that I'd look at, such as coverage and FAR, if it's in Portland, that type of stuff, which FAR is floor area ratio. It's just something that Portland has for how much on a lot you can have. Yeah, why don't you uh, explain that a little bit better since we all are from Portland (laughs) and that's something that is only for Portland or are there any other jurisdictions in the Metro that have an FAR? Not that I can recall. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but usually for residential realm, Portland's where I'm seeing it a lot right now. There might be one in the commercial realm, but I don't know much of commercial realm is a different animal. But the floor area ratio is basically saying, which is different from the coverage area, people get the two confused. And on a ranch style house, they're pretty much the same. But where coverage area is basically, if you took a 2D image of your lot and what's on it. So the, the house, the garage, if you have a gazebo, if you've got a deck that's taller than six feet, that all contributes to your coverage area. And the different jurisdictions will have different 
percentages of that, 40%, sometimes they'll have a different calculation on it. Sometimes some jurisdictions don't have it at all. Just depends. Where it differs from the FAR is that the floor area ratio calculates each floor. Mm. So it calculates your first floor's square footage, your second floor's square footage, and you can't exceed a certain number there. So with additions, both of those numbers do come into play. Often they're not that detrimental because a lot a lot of your area is taken up in setbacks. So you kind of have that lovely balance game. But it is something that I want to be cognizant of, especially with my investors who love flirting with that line greatly sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And in Portland, which is when they do count garages in FAR, even if it's detached. Okay. Which is annoying. So annoying. <laughs> so what is next in the, I guess, planning next, steps? Yeah, next would be my drawing it up. And then I would have been talking with you at the initial measuring appointment and seeing what you're wanting to do. And then I'd either, depending on how simple or complicated the process, I would give you some options for it. Say, here's what you can do with it. And after that, you'd kind of, some people have done the gambit of they've kind of taken mine as advice and made their own. They've taken different aspects of each. Like I usually give about three options. So I'll take different aspects of each option and kind of combine them. Sometimes it's, Especially more with investors, they're like, I like that one, do it. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> either one is fine. And so we'll get to a final design. After we're doing a final design and it's confirmed, yep, that's what I want to do. I'll go into putting in the permit ready details. So depending on what the design is at this point, I'll kind of, sometimes I'll know at the measuring appointment whether this is definitely going to need an engineer. Sometimes I have to wait till we get the final design to feel if we need an engineer or not. That usually depends on how many windows with additions. So at that point, we'll kind of get an engineer involved if we need an engineer. If we don't, and I can do everything prescriptively, I'll move forward with putting in all the details that are needed to build the addition. And then after that's all put in, I'll send it back to say if it's good or not. And if everything looks good to them, we'll ship it over for getting permits. Just like that. Yes, because getting permits is so fast and easy. <laughs> are, are you able to walk stuff in over the counter or are you typically doing like submittals? Submittals mostly, not even Portland's doing over counter stuff anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. Sometimes they'll internally do a faster process if it's simpler, but it's an internal process. And so I can't judge what they're going to do. I can kind of say it, there's a high percentage chance that it's going to go in the fast track. There's not as high percentage chance. It just depends on the job. Um, I found that like basements, if there's really no big structural aspects to it, but like basements, even just like removing one wall, it's fairly straightforward. Those go through pretty quickly, but if you're like overhauling a lot of systems, then it's going to probably go a little slower. And right now, if you're doing Washington County, buckle up. 
And then, so typically, do you work with like the investor on picking out materials or is that kind of something on the drawings you leave up to them? I mean, some architects and interior designers will go as far as like providing paint colors. I mean, there's, there's a level of detail to drawings that you can, that varies widely. And I think that, you know, as our listeners listen to this, like understanding that level of, of detail, both on the kind of like the more economical level and then like the completely full service. Yeah. And that isn't something I've typically done. Just, I kind of got, when I was first getting out, a lot of my clients were in a lot more of my clients were investors than anything. And they would kind of do that part themselves. Either they know what worked or they just wanted to do it themselves. So typically I don't often specify I can, but I don't really like source anything. I have designer, actually, I have clients who are designers because they don't like doing the drafting part, but I do the drafting part and they'll do like all of the selections and the specifications on everything. And I'll do the drawing aspect of it for them. So I get through permitting. I don't necessarily do the selection process for items that I've worked with people with how they want a kitchen to look in the sense of like the cabinet design, but that's usually as far as I've often gone in that realm. So if I have an addition in Washington County that I'm looking to do and it's occupied, so currently it's rented out, what do you think the timeline would be on trying to get some permit sets to start this edition? Well, for like for my time, I'm probably about two months. That, that's about a month to get the measuring appointment. And then a month after that to get some plans. And then there's some back and forth. And then Washington County is being my question mark. They've had like everybody else, they're having staffing issues and just recently for a garage conversion, I had to wait two months for them to send me the link to upload plans, which wow. you know, right out of me. I'm hoping that they're going to be getting some staff members in. So it's going to be a little better on that. But I know people complained about Portland's timeline and it seems like everybody else is like, okay, well, I want to beat that. And I'm like, no, you're supposed to go the opposite direction. You're not supposed to go longer. You're supposed to go shorter. <laughs> I Washington County is one of those words, honestly, with most of the jurisdictions, people ask me, so how long do you think this is going to take? And I'm like, two to six months, because it's excessively hard right now to predict what they're going to do. Like I said, I was expecting Washington County to get back to me high point of two weeks, and it took far longer than that. So, and I, I think it's temporary in the sense of staffing issues. They had three people retire on them all at once, but it's something to be cognizant of. And in general, if you're permitting something, it's going to take longer than you expect. Nine times out of 10, it will take longer than you expect. Yeah. Well, I guess I am slightly in luck because my property is rented out for a year. I guess what I learned from the last time I did a large residential remodel that you shouldn't demo the house right away before you get permits. 
Yes. And yeah. have it sit for 18 months while, while you try and figure everything out. Yeah, That's... I don't. Yeah, that, that is one point that sometimes investors get me a little concerned about is like, they'll start demoing and I'm like, okay. Um, one thing I would say for investors is if you're looking at purchasing a property, if you have the time, because sometimes I know you don't have the time and you're in Portland, do a records pull. Because if you do a records pull on the property, if you're not the owner, it costs $15. But then you know what the city knows on that property. And if something is not permitted, Portland will hold your feet to the fire if you're wanting to get permits. So if you suspect an addition or a garage conversion was done and there's no permits for it and you're getting permits, they will make you rectify that situation. I'm doing that with one right now where it's a garage conversion and yeah. The garage wasn't permitted. Yeah, no, the, the conversion. So the garage was permitted, but the conversion was not permitted. So now we have to go retroactively go in and figure so out. So you're rectifying the garage, the, yeah. the unpermitted garage conversion. Yeah. There, yeah. Is the investor, so what, what's the investor's situation there? Are they just like wanting to sell the house and they have an unpermitted garage conversion or? Yeah, so I've got two of them actually like that. One of them, they're converting the garage to an ADU. So they're not too bad about that the other one they knew that going into it that all signs it was unpermitted people. yeah the other so reason need to fix it yeah the other reason i say to get a records call especially for bungalows and craftsman houses is because the city is going first thing the city will ask is is that an actual second floor so if that half story is actual new living space and if you have a building permit little card and it says a one and a half story you're golden they'll just say okay yep it's pre-existing so i don't have to mess with if the stairs are slightly off it's pre-existing don't care if the spans are overspanned it's pre-existing i don't care which is always fun to do because always nice when i don't have to deal with that one but on the but flip if side it doesn't say one and a half if it doesn't then say what do you one, have to do? So one of two things. So what I do is I look at what's there. So some of them, it doesn't say one and a half stories, but they have original millwork around the windows. They have lath and plaster on the walls and the side ceilings and stuff like that. They have relatively finished floors. So every indication says that this, what the, the staircase is, front when you come into the place so everything is saying i'm finished so what you can do is you can ask an inspector to do a fee-based inspection and say this is original to the house and so they'll come in they'll review it they'll look at pretty much the points that i looked at they also look at like the joist size and they'll make a determination i always like to review the house first before we go that route yeah. Because I want to see if I feel there's anything that might be unpermitted work. Because you are inviting an inspector in, and if they do see unpermitted work, they will call you on it. 
And I always recommend any inspections be there or have somebody there so that they can see That's, That is uh, some of the best advice I've ever heard. You know, when, whenever AJ and I have been trying to get our work like passed through inspection, like being at the property, having a conversation with the inspector relating to them as, you know, a person mm -hmm. uh, has always been the best way to get something passed through because I swear that they all have the code book memorized and they're like, that grass is, you know, <laughs> leaning the wrong way. And, you know, we're going to have to have you correct that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's really good advice of the quote unquote relating to them as a person and, you know, trying yeah. to steer, steer the conversation in, in that aspect as much as possible instead of them remembering the code book. <laughs> yes. And sometimes I've had people strategically place themselves in certain areas or make sure the inspectors go through certain areas. Now, if an inspector is going to walk around the property, he's going to, but if you can kind of make it not as obvious, there's always that. Another thing, if he does call out something, he should have a code reference. I actually got into one of my investors, they got into fun times because the inspector called us out on something, but he didn't have a code reference and it didn't make sense. And the contractor on that job was a little too happy. And so he told the contractor to take out the walls. Like this wasn't a remodel. This was a new construction. We were doing what I call a foundation and wall remodel, which is basically you keep one wall and the foundational footprint and you do it, a lot of other things. <laughs> so this had an addition, a second floor, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he told them to just demo it and like go in for permits again. For new construction. For new construction, yeah. No, we had plans for a remodel and I didn't pull any punches on how terrible the existing foundation was. But he never gave a code reference to it. And unfortunately, in that case, the contractor was a bit too happy. And so he started taking down walls. And yeah, it would have been easier if he hadn't have done that. But what we basically found out is like, he shouldn't have said that. And actually, there was a process we went through to kind of basically. You had to appeal bit. the inspectors, I guess. We didn't really appeal it. We said, hey, you made a mistake. This shouldn't have ever been said. And because of that, we had damages because granted our contractor was too happy with it, but he was doing what the inspector told him to do, um, mm -hmm. which he told him to demo it, which is like, no, you rule of warning. Don't ever demo anything without a permit. Well, a contractor shouldn't demo anything without a change order. He shouldn't either. Yeah. Like, the contractor was good. He called me and I'm like, okay, let me see what's going on. That was half a day's worth of figuring stuff out of saying, okay, we've got, I got a plan. So just leave everything. And he's like, oh, I've already taken it down. I'm like, what? So that was, that, that's a fun one. Sometimes they go a little faster than you want them to, to go on that. But that was a case where the 
the inspector was wrong and he didn't give a code. So they should be able to give you a code item for anything they're calling out. They should have a code item for it so that you can go back and reference it and see what exactly is wrong. Well, okay. Long story short. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're getting towards the, the end of our interview. Why don't we jump into our final four questions? Sure. Okay. How, about, how about I start us off with the first one, which is what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Listen to my instincts. Listen to the little voice in my head more and try to calmly listen to it. Cool. Okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? That would be when I was in elementary school. I would sell candy to my friends on the bus. Nice. A little arbitrage there. Buy some candy or are you talking about like your Halloween candy? No, my grandma would get like Jolly Ranchers. And so I'd take them to to school and I would sell them. <laughs> Free nice. candy being sold. Love it. Yeah. That's the best amount of profit you can get. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I just, that's what I did. So. Nice. All right. Uh, next question is, uh, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? That's a weird one because it's kind of hard to look back and think of the formal and informal. I like learning in general. So I like to grab anything that I can. I do a lot more of the construction pieces now because I've grabbed on to learning that I've just kind of gleaned from other projects and adapted them. And then the formal training is good, but I it's one of those where I always feel like it's hard to separate one from the other. And what the biggest difference between formal and informal training is, I feel is the emotional ones where in your informal training or basically doing it, your emotions are tied up with it. Like in investing in general, your money or somebody else's money, or you're on the hook for the money is on the line for that. And it's your own emotions versus a formal training where you're learning about this and you're like, oh yeah, I've got a loan and I've got to pay this. But it's not the fact of you do have to pay this. So I think that's the biggest difference for me of just the emotions between those two. And how they've shaped me is just having to negotiate them far more. Okay. I'm not sure right. if answering that question, but that's <laughs> what I got. <laughs> yeah, it can be a tough one sometimes. And our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Uh, biggest mistake also goes to the first question is kind of not listening to in my instincts and kind of the little bits of red flags. I had little bits of red flags with a partner that I shouldn't have partnered with, as well as a contractor that I shouldn't have hired. And I kept seeing them and I kept on saying it was okay. And I really shouldn't have. So that was one of those where just usually my bigger mistakes come to that I hadn't listened to my instincts on that. 
as well as can you describe a little bit more like the situation you got yourself into and why it was bad well with the contractor i'll just say that it took him three weeks to not do half a day's worth of work Mm. which that was kind of indicative he kept on saying he'd do stuff and then he would do it but he'd only be there for like not as long as I was expecting him to be there. And he would say he would show up and he didn't. And he was a decent client at the time. So I thought, okay, he's going to do good because we were for each other business. But yeah, he just kind of fell off on me and it didn't really work out on that part. And because of that, I lost a lot of time and probably money because I had to take the reins of it also stress lots of stress because i was literally living in a house without a working toilet and heating system Mm. so that was fun the partner aspect was that i rely this is when i was really new to everything and i relied too much on the partner's experience and Later, I learned she basically overestimated the value and underestimated the construction costs, and she didn't get a home inspection at all. So we had a lot of surprises that we weren't expecting, which I will never not do a home inspection unless I am completely and utterly getting a place. But that's kind of, and just having to get out of that, which took about, I think, two and a half years to get out of that deal. Yeah, I did lose money, but I got out of it and I figured that was college expenses. <laughs> that is a good way to look at it. Knowledge is there's some informal training for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sasha, it's been a blast having you on. If our listeners want to get a hold of you or learn more about you, what is the best way for them to get in contact with you? Phone call is probably the number one way. Second would be emails, but phone number. Five four one two three one six three one eight. I'm sure you guys will post it too. So that's probably the best way to get a hold of me right now. I would love to say that I have a Facebook page and a website, but I've been doing too much of my work to actually get those up and running. So <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to take care of my clients more than that. So understandable. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just appreciate you sharing your knowledge and you know, the, the design process, like it's, uh, it's, it's good to hear it from a professional that works in it every day. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you for listening to this episode of the real estate professionals investing podcast on win your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.